If you would turn your Bibles to Genesis 50. By the way, um, we are going to start the book of uh, Galatians next week. And so um, this is our last study in Genesis. And then we're going to start Galatians. We'll spend, it looks, I think, probably like 13 weeks in Galatians. And then we'll go from there. But just uh, just be reminded of that. Be aware of that. If you want to start reading over that book, um, that would be great and to kind of get yourself prepared. And we'll have a study guide come out this week. And uh, So anyway, just wanted to share that with you. Also, uh, just in thinking of Genesis, there's just a couple of things I thought about today that just would be important to, to just out, uh, point out. Um, uh, it, it lays a foundation. Genesis is one of those books that lays a foundation for the rest of the Bible and for your whole life. I mean, it unpacks kind of the, the, the beginning of everything. It's the pattern of the way God designed everything to be. It's the pattern for us, but it's also... Um, it shows like not only kind of the way it ought to be, but then it shows us why we are the way we are presently. And so it kind of lays out for us the way God designed it, how it got messed up, it's broken, and then it also points us to how it's going to be restored. And so I think Genesis is one of those things that books that kind of lays that foundation, and the Bible keeps picking it up, and we have to keep running back to it to understand that. And so it just it, it builds a case for kind of the whole of the world. Now, what does God do? What does He promise? God promised for us that He was going to save a people for Himself, that He would, would choose to save a people, and that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Early in Genesis, He said that there would be, be one that would come who would crush the head of the serpent. Later in Genesis 22, it, uh, God would speak and say that through your seed, Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. Later in the Scripture, we'll find out that the one who crushed the head of the serpent was the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, he is the seed of Abraham. And, 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 and even it, as we studied our, our passage and kind of thought about Judah, and it says a scepter will not depart from Judah. There was a king that would come, and his kingdom would last forever. And we will see that in Matthew, that Jesus is the king that came for us. So there's just so much about Genesis that's building the case for, again, the way the world should be, why it's not what it should be, and how God is going to fix it. That's kind of what Genesis does for us. And so I think it, hopefully as you spend the rest of your life not only delving into God's Word but trying to understand your world that you're living in, you'll run back to these, these truths that come from this book. And so I hope it will be something that would bless you uh, as much as it's blessed me as I kind of work through that. So if you would just bow with me as we get started this morning. Father, we just come to you today grateful of your goodness, of your mercy towards us, aware that but for your grace, all hope would be lost. But in your grace, we have hope. A hope that is sure. We have the promise of salvation. Lord, we know that you promised us that for today, in this life, but it, how much greater is it for the age to come? And so we ask, Lord, that you give us a reminder that you're in the business of saving us today from our sin and our struggles and our, our difficulties, Lord, but also in the life to come. We have a promise of a future we can hope in. In Christ's name, amen. So today, as we look at this, just Jacob will be buried in Canaan. We're going to see that. Last chapter, or 49th end, Jacob dies. Now he is, he's died, and it's time for him to be buried. We'll also go through that process, see them grieve and all those things, and then we'll come to a place uh, where... 
Basically, the brothers are going to look up and go, uh-oh, dad's gone, and so Joseph's going to come and get us. And so they begin to ask for forgiveness, and of course Joseph's going to grant that for them. And then we see Joseph's coming to the end of his life, and he, he's about to die, and he does die, and he says, listen, do what you did with my father. Not necessarily take me at that time, but you store my body up, and you take it with you when God delivers you from this land. And so you kind of see it ends in hope that God's going to do that and leads up to the story of the Exodus. And so you just kind of think about it as it concludes. Now, I want you to think about a couple of things this morning. One is that we need to think about death and rightly respond to it. In our culture, we kind of want to forget about death. We like to celebrate life and forget about death. And certainly there's some value in that. But there's also um, something to be said for thinking about how we grieve and how we face death. And I think that's an important thing. We're going to kind of unpack that as we move forward. Also, just something, how to deal with life. I mean, that's another issue here, is how to deal with the troubles of this life. We're going to kind of face that this morning because the brothers are going to bring back what happened before. And the third thing, I think, is I want you to see how faith relates to both of those. How your knowledge of God and what He's done through His Son relates to both of those issues. How do you face death and how do you face living this life in a fallen world? And so I think both, all those are kind of answered as we move forward. And so I just want to kind of get you to think about that. So you're in Genesis 50. We start in verse 1. It says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. So Jacob dies. We know that Joseph had spent many years outside of the presence of his father. Uh, really, we know for sure that there was this absence of being with him for some I guess you might say 22 years that he was without his father. He loved his father. He desired to be with him. And then he was able to spend that time, the last 17 years of his father's life, with him. So it's a very powerful moment for him. The loss of this man he loved so dearly. As you keep moving, you just kind of think about death. In, in, in our culture, again, just thinking about that, sometimes we don't like to make much of it. We want it to be over with quickly. We don't want to face it. I heard some of the people in discussion saying that used to like a body of someone would someone would pass away. They would have that dead body in the house. People would be aware of it, and people would come by, and they would know. Even the children, everyone knew what was going on in the house. And sometimes we want to kind of cover up the horrific nature of death. And so I think it's important just to say that we kind of have one person wrote about this and said we have a death-denying attitude in this culture. We work out, we eat healthy foods, we celebrate being young, we watch Dr. Oz. My mom likes Dr. Oz, I'm not beating her up. But I'm just saying, y'all like Dr. Oz? He gives you stuff every day that you can do to add 30 seconds to your life. You add all that up over a year, you may live forever. No, but but uh, Dr. Oz, I mean, they come up with all the, I mean, you've got to drink fish oil, you've got to do, I mean, it's just wild stuff. You eat some like, root of a tree in the Amazon. You know, you just think about all the things. They come up with all these things and all these ways to kind of help you live forever. I read a story not too long ago about people that were traveling. I can't even remember where it was, but evidently there were these uh, trees, these uh, coffee trees, and I think we may have talked about this. I don't remember. But they were eating. The elephants would eat the trees, let it go through their digestive system, release it from their digestive system, and the people would go in there and get those coffee beans and then roast them and drink it up, man. It's supposed to be so much 
I mean, I don't know. So I don't know if you've ever gone that far or if you would, but it's like $50 a pound for that kind of, if you ever want some elephant stool coffee beans. But it, we live in that kind of world where it's almost wild, like insane with all the thoughts about how to live longer and how to live better and all those things. But And we even talk about it like in, in the church, we'll say, oh, so-and-so, brother so-and-so passed away or... We'll talk about someone went home to be with the Lord. We don't really like saying somebody died. It's it's a hard thing to see and think about. And I was just reading some things this week about that, and just even the idea in our culture, just about how like kids grow up and they watch television, they play video games, and they see death, and they're almost desensitized to death. Psychologically, they are because it's not really it's not really that bad because you see it everywhere. And, and so it's almost like kind of a, it's not that big a deal unless it really happens. Someone really close to you. Uh, there's also kind of the idea of just, like we said, staying young. And then the third thing is one of the, these authors wrote about death. He said, you know, in, in, one, in, in one sense, like in the old days with our culture, let's say 50 years ago, the mindset about death was like it's a part of life. In the Judeo-Christian kind of, ethic we say that's just a part of life we understand the fall and we understand that people will die but in today's secular world it's like if we could ignore it that's what we want to do at all cost and so i just bring all that out because i think it's important to to ask like how do we view it i think as a culture we view it differently than the way the bible views it and i think we just have to kind of address that the other thing that this one author wrote about it his name was uh, franz Borkenau, I don't know if I said that right. I said that in a southern way, so who knows how it was pronounced. But he says that we live in this death-defying culture, but then there's also like within the Christian, or in the, I'm sorry, in the Christian culture, it's like death-defying in this sense that Paul would say, oh, death, where is your sting? He, he would speak of it in a way that would say that, you know, death, where is your victory? It's like saying, like, we're going to overcome death. The Christian view is not to deny it, to say it really exists, but then in saying that, saying that we have victory over it. The Christian view is that different. It's not that we're running from death, but we can greet it in a sense as a friend. We greet it in that way because we know that to pass from this life is to enter into a future with God. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that that doesn't mean that there won't be sadness as a result, but I think as a Christian, we have to think that there is something about death that should. And I remember hearing a pastor one time, they thought he was going to die, they told him he was going to die, and he's lying there uh, in like ICU. And he said, as I thought about it, I began to long for that. No longer do I have to face, face all the trouble of this life. No longer do I have to war within my own heart with all this sin. And I don't have to face it in this world and all those things. But he began to look forward to that day. And not only that, he would see his Savior. There's something very powerful about that. So I just think it's important kind of to note that in the way that we think about it and try to think rightly. Now another thing in verses 2-6, through six, Joseph's going to prep his, uh, Jacob's body and then he's going to go about burying him. And actually that goes on through the chapter for some period of time. But one of the things we see here is that Joseph grieves. In verse 1, we note, noted that. He, he grieves over his father. But in verse 3, there's 70 days of weeping. Now, that, that's kind of astonishing. 
After those 70 days, they travel for a couple of weeks probably. And then there's even another week of weeping. It's one of those things where in our culture, we would say, you are a crazy person. If you actually, at one level, if someone is like really wailing at a funeral, the first thought for most people would be, they need some medication to help them get through this. Because to, to really wail and to weep and to express emotion and to have a troubling thought about death is somehow like, whoa, that's too much. Death is sad. Watching someone pass out of your life is not always the most exciting moment. There's a joy in it. At the same time, there's a part of it that's just heartbreaking. And so I just think it's important that we understand that and we think about that. So we see Joseph in this way, but and we also the second thing you kind of see is that he does kind of follow the pattern of that culture. He does preserve his father's body and he's he he does carry it somewhere and they do bury it and it has value to them. That they would they would he would follow that pattern. Another thing you see is just that he fulfills this promise to his dad. And he, he does that. In his father's death, he doesn't say, that old crazy dude wanted me to carry him a couple of, you know, however many miles away. I'm not going to do that. It's too much of an inconvenience. He'll never know. He's dead. But he fulfills this promise to his father in the end. And see, as you move forward, verses 7-9, through nine, uh, Joseph's going to talk to Pharaoh or have someone speak to him. He talks to the servants. We don't know what the deal is with that. I mean, some kings that had to summon you to come speak to them. Even somebody at the level that Joseph is, there was that potential. Another thing, you just wanted to make sure that somehow uh, Pharaoh's heart was softened to what was about to take place. Uh, we don't know all the details. I heard someone say earlier, maybe he just wasn't prepared to enter into Pharaoh's presence. He was in a time of mourning. And some kings even did not like to be around people that mourned. They wanted a happy kind of environment. So we don't know all the details of that, but anyway, basically what happens is they come to this deal and, and Pharaoh says, okay, you can go ahead and bury your father. And when he begins to pull together the people, notice in verse 7, Joseph went up to bury his father. With him were the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his, his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there they went up with both chariots and horsemen. It was a great company. Th this is a big deal. I mean, this is no small thing. I mean, this is a massive, a massive funeral procession. We go, we drive our cars, the lights are on, we see that, we pull over to the side of the road. At least most people do that. So I understood that you would do that. But this is just a massive, massive undertaking here. Here. And I think this group um, even stops again for a week. They're, they're going like step by step. They're traveling in tents to go there. You would see, see that. And they're, they're taking this at, at some level in a very powerful way. Actually, the people, when they see it from the land that they were going into, were like, man, this is astonishing. They even came up with a name for what was taking place. It's, it's a, th th this funeral thing, it was a big deal moving forward. But then after the funeral, now here's the thing, and you, you guys, we know this, but sometimes in our culture, when someone faces a very horrific and trying event like this, everybody shows up for like three days. And then everybody's gone. 
But really, the deal is, most people are in shock. And the greater grieving comes later, you know? And I think we're unaware of that. Oftentimes, we don't think about it. Maybe we're too self-absorbed. Maybe we're too busy. I don't know. But ultimately, we understand it. So there comes a point in verse 14, after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, again, I just want to stop here because James Boyce brought some things out that I wouldn't have thought about. But he talks about just that whole process of grieving. Again, again, we sometimes don't want to think that that's part of life, but the reality is that it is. And he, he read a book and he, he quoted Elizabeth Elliot, who, y'all know Jim Elliot, you may have heard of him. He was killed by Indians when he went to share the gospel. They killed him. And she faced that as a young woman, the loss of her husband. And then later she remarried. And her husband, her, her second husband, he, he had cancer. And his body just slowly, he died over a long period of time. And as she talked about this, asking the question of how do we grieve? How do you grieve throughout the process of the struggle in life after the funeral? How do you move forward? She, she listed six things, and I thought they were helpful. You might want to write them down. The first one was to be still and know that God is God. Be still and know that God is God. Psalm 46 speaks of the earth giving away, the waters roaring, and the mountains quaking. And then it says, be still and know that I am God. In, in your life, when those kind of moments, whether whatever it might be, they come, it does feel that shocking. Oftentimes, someone very close to you, it is shocking what is taking place, and to stop and be still and say, God is God. He's still on the throne. He is absolutely sovereign over the universe. Although my eyes can only see everything around me crushing down and my whole life being changed, God is God. The second thing, to give thanks. And, and you know, it, that's a hard thing to do sometimes, but even though, Psalm 23 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. There's this idea there where he is thanking God that he is moving with him through those trials. I think it's a valuable thing for us. The third thing is to refuse self-pity. She said this is one of the most destructive things. She says, it is, says Elliot, a death that has no resurrection, a sinkhole from which no rescuing hand can drag you because you have chosen to sink. Self-pity must, must and can be resisted. She just says, like, we have to fight that in the midst of those things because it's so difficult. The fourth thing she says to accept one's loneliness because in this life, the loss of someone leaves a gap. That's reality. There's that struggle there. And in that moment, to accept one's loneliness is to say, look, this is going to be a part of it. Especially one of the things that's most frightening to me is an older couple when when one of the spouses passes away and they are left alone, they spent 40 years together and now they're all alone. In the moment, I think it's so important just to say, you have to accept that as part of it. But then she says, you offer that back to God. Sometimes that's all you have left. You offer that loneliness back to God and you, and you give that to before Him and say, Lord, this is where I'm at and I hand this back to You. I want to use it for Your glory. And the last thing is to do something for somebody else. I think sometimes when we face trouble in this life and there's this grieving that goes on and the, the trouble that comes through death, maybe, like again, our culture so like wants to get over it so quick, they pass by it, but the reality is you're still going to go through this grief. And so what do you do? Now, I've watched people do this very well. 
where they used that as an avenue to serve other people. I mean, sometimes things are so difficult, and really, sometimes nobody knows how difficult it was. And so what do you do in that moment? What you do is you say, God has given me this. This is part of His mercy to me. He has given me the life that I have, this trouble, this trial, this death, this loss, this whatever, and God's given it to me not so I can sit in self-pity, but so that I can serve other people with it. So I don't know, you might say, I don't know how, where did you get all this? I, I just, it just helped me this week to think about the fact that they grieved and they grieved a long time and through their grieving they did have to get up, but as they went forward, how do you go forward? I think some of those things might help you. So, now, the last thing I would say is that we do not grieve like the world grieves. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him Bring, will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There is something about this that it's important that in their grief, they take His body and they put Him in the grave and they certainly do so, but they are doing it in faith. That's what the Scripture presents to us when we look at this. They are doing it in faith. They carried His body there because they believed that He had a place in the future. He was gathering with His fathers. They believe that really by faith, the Scripture says, that they are buried, they're believing the promise of God. And the promise was not just that they would get that land one day. The promise was an eternal inheritance. They put Him in the grave by faith. We grieve by faith. Trusting God to do what He says that He will do. One last thing, just kind of, again, like, it really, again, helped me just thinking through this process. James Boyce says, as we stand at the grave and hear the words of the service assuring us that one who has died shall rise again, let us hear them not only as a promise for the deceased, but a promise for ourselves as well. Today, a part of us is buried, but we shall live again. Grief will be overcome. Sorrow will be conquered. Why? Because God will see to it. He will yet unfold the riches of His blessings in our life. God has not leave us there. Even when we put someone on the ground and a part of us dies, He will bring back life to His children. So you might say, man, I don't know why you're talking about it. Because I think it's inevitable for you. You know that? Unless the Lord returns, you will face loss. And in doing so, denying it is not the answer. Christians believe in a death-defying mindset that we do lose people, and it is heartbreaking. But they will be seen again. 
because death has no victory, because Christ was resurrected. We hold on to that hope. So I just encourage you in that, that we are to face death by faith. We do not grieve like the world. Our grief is swallowed up in the victory secured by Jesus. So I think that's an important thing just to hit as we move forward. But anyway, the next verses as we move ahead is going to be a, a kind of a shift. And I said, you're going to look at this chapter and one aspect is going to be how to deal with death. The other aspect is how to deal with a life in a fallen world. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. They knew what they had done. Now here's the thing. You know we always say sin has a way of like affecting a lot bigger spectrum than just you? So you say, oh, I can't like kind of sin in the closet and nobody else is kind of affected. They understood that their sin against him caused him to be in Egypt, caused him to have to face a woman who wanted to know him sexually, caused him to reject that and go to prison, caused him to be there for a time and then some people to forget about him when they had the dream and he gave them an interpretation. All of that started a chain of events in his life that meant great suffering. So he, they also understood that for not only did he go through that for 13 years, but then you add on top of that another, what is it, nine years that he's there, not being able to see his father, separated from his family. They understood that all of these things came back to their decision to, to hate their brother. Verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So he's going to say, they're going to say like, remember what God, I mean our father said, remember our father said that you're to forgive us. They're bringing that up because they know his respect for his father, but in the back of their minds, they always thought the day dad's gone, then all heck's going to break loose in the family. We see that in our culture. Oftentimes there's one person in a family that seems to kind of hold everything together, and when they are gone from being the one who tries to bring peace in the family, then all kinds of craziness ensues. Because the reality is sometimes we cover up the problem for that person. And we don't really come to that place of forgiveness, so it's like a false kind of thing. So they're kind of thinking about that and what's taking place here, and, and ultimately they know that he could do whatever he wanted to do. But you see, what does he do? He weeps. He really has demonstrated a heart of forgiveness towards them. It wasn't a little fake deal until Dad was gone. It was the real deal. But they wondered, was that the real thing that was taking place? Now, what would you maybe learn from that in this moment? I think there's a couple of things. One is we should have the heart of Joseph towards those who have wronged us, even, even if they haven't formally asked for forgiveness. We don't, I don't know. This is the only time where it seems to be a formal declaration of asking for forgiveness. A heart of forgiveness towards someone, even if they never ask it, I think is the biblical principle. Even if I can't extend it, because they haven't actually formally said, will you forgive me? To have that heart is truly there in the life of Joseph. I think the second thing would be that there should be a time of formal forgiveness, asking for that. Sometimes I think we want to say, hey, 
uh, everything's cool because we woke up today and we just forgotten all these things that have been done and we never want to go to somebody because it, it, we're really proud. So we don't want to say, I've wronged you. I, I've, I've done something wrong to you and I want to ask your forgiveness. So, so I think in one sense we have to say, in this story you say, one is you have to have a heart of forgiveness for those who've wronged you. Two is we should bring that to those that we've wronged and ask for it formally. The third thing I think you see is if you do not forgive or do not ask for forgiveness, it reveals pride in your heart. If you do not forgive or do not ask for forgiveness, it reveals pride in your own heart. All that means is you haven't looked in the mirror. That's all it means. You have not stood very long in the mirror to reveal what's really going on in your sinful heart and all the things that you've done against God and against others. You've forgotten all that. And you've held on to what people have done to you. You're really good at holding on what they've done and not what you've done. You've forgotten what you've done. You hold on to what they've done. It's a really twisted thing. And so what happens for a Christian is this. When you understand the forgiveness shown to you, you will humble yourself to forgive and to ask for forgiveness. That's what a Christian does. Why? Because they stand before the mountains of their sins. All the, 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 the unbelievable amount of sin in their lives. They stand before that and they see it. And then they see that Jesus comes and His grace washes away their sin. And it covers that mountain of sin in a way that could never have been covered before. And when you do that, a Christian rightly understands that, then they forgive. And they extend forgiveness. And they ask for forgiveness. Verse 18, His brothers come, they bow down before Him, and He responds in verse 19. Notice this, this is important. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? What in the world does that mean? Am I in the place of God? Now we'll keep moving forward. I'm going to answer that, but just look at this next verse. As for you, you mean evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus He comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What does it mean though when He said, am I in the place of God? I think what it means is that God is the ultimate judge. Romans 12 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's astonishing. It's an act of faith in this fallen world to, to, it's an act of faith in this fallen world to look at someone and to see and understand that, listen, you are not the judge. One of the, I can't think, uh, Denzel Washington, you know, y'all know him, maybe he did a bunch of movies. Anyway, Denzel Washington has a, a movie, it's called Man on Fire, and he looks at a guy and he says, I'm not the judge, but I arranged the meeting, and then he blows him up. I don't think that's the answer. The answer is not to say, well, that's what I'm going to do. No, that's not the answer. And you know he's my favorite. You know she's shaking her head like, why do you say? But I'm just, in this moment, I think you're saying God is the one who takes care of these things. God is the one. I can entrust that to Him. 
God is going to judge sin better than I ever would. And for those His brothers in that moment, if they repent, who's going to be judged on their behalf? The one, the deliverer that's going to come. The, the, the seed of Abraham. Jesus is going to be punished on their behalf. Or they will spend eternity in hell experiencing the wrath of God for all the sins they've committed, even the sins they committed against you. So either way, God's going to deal with those and He'll deal with them rightly. Then we see Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What's he saying? God's accomplishing His plan through your sin. We said that over and over, but we, when we face life in a fallen world, like I said today, I want you to think to live by faith in this life in a fallen world. How do I do that? It's understanding this reality that no one, no one in this life can do anything to me unless it passes through the hands of our sovereign God. No one. And if that is true, then those people, as I'm looking at them, I understand that even though they've sinned, they have done that. Only, they've gone only so far as God allowed them. But even we could take a step further and just say, God's purpose for me was to endure that difficulty so that He might make me in the person that He has for me to be. What He wants for me is accomplished through the sins of others. That is shocking. But to understand that, I think it's so important to grasp that. That does not give us a license to run around and sin all we want. Because we will face God for what we have done. But we should understand that whatever we face is only part of God's plan for us in the moment. Romans 8, turn there real quick. I just want you to have that so you can turn there. Romans 8, 28. We're going to look at that just for a moment. Because I do think, man, that's like, I mean, a lot of people's favorite verse because they understand living in a fallen world that they will face trouble. And I think it is a verse we should run back to and be reminded of. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. What does this say? Not everything you face is good. Not everything you face in this life is good, but God works for the good of those who love Him. Another thing, just going back to this uh, thing that I read this week about Elizabeth Elliot, she said, the experiences of my life are not such that I can infer from them that God is good, gracious, and merciful necessarily. What she's saying is, when I look at the events of my life and my husband being killed by these Indians that he was going to share the gospel to, like in that moment, I don't say, oh, this just gives me evidence that God is good and gracious and merciful to me. It's not, it doesn't always go like that. It's not that we always see it that way. And when she watched her other husband die of cancer, it wasn't in that moment that she could say, oh, I can see that, I can see that. It's hard to see that. But this is not, this is what she says, but this is not how a Christian judges things. This, that kind of judging is by sight. My belief in the love of God is not by inference or instinct, she wrote. It is by faith. To apprehend God's sovereignty working in that love is, we must say it, the last and highest victory of the faith that overcomes the world. 
What do we do when we can't see it? When we can't say, oh, I see the goodness of God. I see the love of God in this moment. We cling by faith that He is who He says that He is. I bypass my feelings. And I go on the fact of His Word. And I embrace that and believe that and hope in that. That God is good and He is loving and He is sovereign and He is ruling and He's gr- He is good. And He wants my good. And He chases after me with goodness and mercy all the days of my life. So one thing is just to know that. The other thing is to know that all things are controlled by God. Just over and over we need to understand that. And they work for our good. So I just think it's important just to see that. Because it is like in this life so many times so difficult to understand all the circumstances we face. The last few verses here. Joseph lives for another... He's 56 when his father dies. He lives for another 54 years. Evidently in the same place that he was all along, in the place of power. And he provides... Uh, he, he sees his, 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 like the generations grow up under his family and he provides for his family. And we see all of this taking place. But in verse 24, he says something very powerful. He says to his brothers, and I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that He swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will, God will visit, surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so he died. They embalmed him, and they put him in a coffin. And what we're going to find out is he's going to be taken from that place to the land of promise. Joseph died in faith. He made them swear, you will do this because he believed that God was not going to leave them there. That he will fulfill his promise. So today, I think it's just important we kind of think through this. In this story, we learn about how to deal with death. We know that death is a reality and we should weep, but we weep not like those who have no hope. We do have hope that God promises to do what He says that He will do. We also learn about how to deal with life. When we're faced with difficulties in this life, we understand from this, how do we deal with those? We see those as a part of the sovereign hand of God. And we see those as part of His plan to accomplish His plan in our life. I think it's just important to understand that. And the issue is then, why can we do this? Why can we do this? Number one, it's because God is sovereign. We see that. And number two, we understand the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus came and lived the life that we never lived. He lived a perfect, obedient life. He went to the cross and died on the cross for us. Brought forgiveness to us. In, he, he took the, like, the, brunt, uh, the whole of God's wrath for us. He died on the cross, but He rose again victorious. Listen, we do not go and just remind ourselves of the promise to a, to a, a, a grave site like they would go back maybe to Jacob's and say, this is where He did it. He died in faith. We go to an empty grave. We go to a grave that, that is empty. Christ was resurrected. We hope in that promise that He was raised. As Paul said, death is swallowed up in victory. But we also understand because He was raised, that we've been raised spiritually to life. And not only that, that resurrection power resides in God's people so that when we face life, we understand the Spirit is within us. We've been brought to life. And we can face these troubled waters in this life. We can face them by faith. 
We can face them by the power of the Spirit. We must walk by faith and hold on to the promises that God is with His people through death and life. And he is working to accomplish His plan. You know, later Israel would spend 400 years in prison. Then they would cry out to God and God would send a deliverer. And they, he, he would bring them out and they would carry Joseph's bones and they would come to a place, they would meet with God, they would keep moving forward after a 40-year kind of stint of having to stop. God's going to take them into the land and give them victory in that land. We know later that all kinds of troubles ensues and there's all kinds of troubles going on, but ultimately one day one would come, King Jesus would come, and He would raise up a new exodus and He would bring people from this sin and death and all the destruction, and He would raise them up so that they would have victory over all the troubles of this life. And not only that, they'd have victory in death. His, his new, the new exodus of Jesus brought about unbelievable results. It's so much greater than the original one. God would save His people and rescue them through His Son. And that promise of, that was given to Abraham would be fulfilled in Him. So that you and I can come here today and be reminded of that. So I just want you to pray with me as we conclude today and ask the Lord to help us see the truth about His promise that was fulfilled in Jesus. Father, we just come to you today aware that you have given us everything for a life of godliness, that you're about transforming us. That You do not leave us in our sin. That You have saved us from it. And that we're not just having to look back and say, oh, remember, Jacob died in faith and Joseph died by faith. We could run by their, their, their places where they were buried and say, remember, they believed that God was going to do something. Lord, we, we come to You today knowing that Jesus died, but He rose again. As we enter into this time, the season of remembering the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, may we remember that anew. He has empowered us for this life and the life to come. He did not leave us. He provided His Spirit so that we believe and trust and walk in those truths. In Christ's name.